It's time for another episode of the Cultural Hall. It's episode number 212, uh, where we're going to be talking to Brant Gardner. Now, give people a tease to stick around for the second and third block. Uh, tell people a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. Things, your bodies of work, your specialties, if you will. Well, the newest thing is I've got a couple of chapters in a book that uh, is a collection of scholars on the Book of Mormon who are looking at various things that people have questioned about the Book of Mormon. So it's a book of answers, but the book is called A Reason for faith. So that is something that we're really kind of interested in, just barely came out. One of the reasons I was asked to contribute to that is because I've done a lot of other work on the Book of Mormon. Uh, First thing, oddly enough, that I uh, contributed to the Book of Mormon was a six-volume commentary called Second Witness. So I kind of started with the Big Bang. Yeah, geez. Uh, Then there's been another book... um, called The Gift and Power, Translating the Book of Mormon, and then this last August one called Traditions of the Fathers, uh, which looks at the Book of Mormon in history. So stick around. You're going to learn some stuff about the Book of Mormon. You've read the book, but now maybe you're going to have the opportunity to learn at a deeper level or some things that you've never even thought of or some things you never even knew. That'll be coming up in the second and third block. But uh, Brant Gardner, tell us a little bit about yourself. Obviously, then, an author, is that your your profession? That is not my profession. It's my avocation, my profession. I work with a company that sells software. We uh, sell to school districts to route school buses around. So I demonstrate software for a living. Okay. And uh, then in my spare time, when I get the chance, I try to write some things down. That seems completely different. That is uh, (laughs) very, very different. I had gone to school to become an anthropologist and got through my master's degree and... Finances conspired, and my wife decided that she really would like to have food on the table and a roof over her head, and she had some very persuasive arguments, and I told her I'd take a year off to do that, and it has been a very long year. (laughs) Very. They're good about stuff like that, aren't they? They are. They they kind of like to make sure that the family's taken care of, and I can't complain too much about it. Oh, sure. And and one of those things where you definitely are like, you know, okay, I get it. I get yeah. where you're coming from. Uh, are you born and raised Utah? Give me uh, some feedback as far as that Gardner goes. Gardner Clan is all Utah. I'm born and raised Southern California. Okay. Uh, so I was in Southern California for a long time, came back to BYU for undergraduate work, and then at the State University of New York, Albany for my graduate work, where I had, again, promised my wife I'd only be there for four years and 18 years later I got tired of the snow and uh, I'm now in Albuquerque New Mexico okay so you're not even from Utah now you're visiting us from that's correct from the great state of Albuquerque uh I I want to ask you this uh coming to BYU for your undergrad uh it, it seems like a lot of people so I served my mission in Cleveland and it seemed like uh, a lot of people were like oh college is obviously you come back to Zion, you come to uh, you know Utah to be surrounded by Mormon folk. Was that the idea behind BYU, or was it parents had gone there, or what was the draw? The, the draw was oddly enough that I thought I wanted to be a seminary and institute teacher. I had been in Spain and on a mission, spoke Spanish, and I said, oh, this would be a great idea, and the best place to do that would be BYU. And I got myself to BYU, and I went and asked the question, and they said, oh, we don't take Americans to do that anymore. And so here I am at BYU, and they said that the reason I came didn't exist <laughs> anymore, and I had to find something else, which I did, um, and kind of found the right people at the right time, and that got me interested in anthropology. And it was a wonderful experience. It was just kind of a mistake. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, give give me a, a definition, because when I think of anthropology, I don't think I get exactly what anthropology is. So dumb down anthropology yeah, for me. Anthropology is, for most of anthropology, it's the study of non-Western cultures. So we get a lot of things where people are going to study uh, medieval Europe, and we know what that is. Uh-huh. But when you study anthropology, you're going to be studying people typically that don't have records. And then inside of anthropology, they'll add in frequently archaeology. So an archaeologist and an anthropologist are part of the same department at a university. And then what I was doing in anthropology was combining it with historical studies, where instead of doing, for example, a history of somebody in medieval Europe, I'm trying to figure out the history of, let's say, the Aztec Indians. Okay. And uh, based on their chronicles and other information, what could we learn? And then since then, we've had a lot of translation work done on the Maya glyphs, and so now everybody's enamored with the Maya, because now we can learn something uh, more about the Maya from themselves directly, rather than through the Spanish chronicles. It seems so fascinating to me, going back to the bus route uh, <laughs> software. Like, yeah. it seems to me like where you would be so passionate about peoples and their histories and all these things, and and to be like, I love you, sweetheart, I'm gonna do bus software. <laughs> and, like, what what a crazy world yeah right. it's completely separate it's been uh, a fun experience and frankly um, the, the thing that it's allowed me to do is have some free time in early mornings and late nights and every once in a while on airplanes to either write or edit uh, while I do that kind of thing the other thing that's been really nice is that by not being part of a university I'm not part of the tenure track system mm-hmm. so I don't have to watch what I say or watch what I publish because I have uh, a secular department looking over my shoulder wondering about it. So I've been free to write about the Book of Mormon because uh, there isn't anybody who holds my paycheck ransom for what I say. Yeah. Uh, And fascinating. We'll get into it uh, as to why the Book of Mormon was such the passion that you had to dive into. Uh, Wife, kids? I have uh, four children, all of whom are older now. The uh, three oldest married and uh, the fewest grandchildren from one set is two, and then uh, five and four. So. Oh, yeah. So we, grandpa. And- yeah, grandpa. Yeah, I get to do the grandpa duty. Um, yeah, a lot, lot of fun. Way better than dad, right? Oh, it's absolutely better than dad. <laughs> it is, it's so nice to have the, the grandchildren around to play with them, have a great time, spoil them, and send them home with their parents. It's a wonderful thing. <laughs> uh, why Albuquerque? Why was that the thing? Albany, New York uh, can get very cold. Sure. Um, I, but I, I would remember, think that Albuquerque could get really hot and miserable. Not necessarily. It'll only get up to maybe 104, and with the lack of humidity, that's not as bad as it sounds. Uh-huh. Um we do get some snow, and when we went there, we originally thought that having four seasons would be a nice idea, and now we're down to three seasons would be a nice idea, and there's a little too much cold, but we're there, so... Uh, we'll enjoy it, but it was it was a good place to get out of the snow and a little bit closer to family that had all migrated west. Uh, I want to take a break for a second, and then we'll come back, and I want to talk all about this project, uh, Reason for Faith, and your yes. involvement in it. Uh, so let's come back. We'll take a break for just a second. We'll do that in the second block of the Cultural Hall. Running a small business today can be difficult enough. Imagine all the work you have to do to market it. Imagine the hours you put in to create promotional materials for it. Now, imagine a partner that can help you with all of that and more. 
Imagine Lennon Design. Lennon Design is your partner in business when you need a professional look at a price you can afford. Whether it's websites, advertising media, promotional materials, and more, Lennon Design can help you promote your business. When you need creative, affordable designs, let it be. Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. All right, it's time for the second block of the Cultural Hall with uh, Brant Gardner talking about A Reason for Faith. This book available now. People can pick it up. Uh, you, the best thing that I would do is if you go to the culturalhall.com in association with this episode, uh, especially if you subscribe on iTunes and things like that, you can just find a link to the book and you can purchase it that way. Um but uh, it, there's a there's a lot of it's heavy hitters on this book. Uh, I'm noticing besides yourself, uh, Brand Gardner, uh, a I lot of names. Myself one of the lightweights. That's, yeah, that's part of it. There's some real good heavy hitters. Uh, are experts in their topic. Yeah, for sure. So, how did the collaboration come about? Let's talk sort of around the book before we talk about the content of the book. I, I think the most important thing, I guess, is the reason for the book, which oh. is there's so many people now who have questions based on things they've heard on the internet and topics that are coming up on the internet. And there needs to be a really good single source where people can get good answers to these questions Yeah, that are done by competent scholars and people who know the issues and people who can speak intelligently to uh, what the questions are, why they are, and what the real answers might be. And so that's the reason for the book. Then what happens is Laurel Hales was the one that really wanted to get this together so that people had the opportunity to learn more. And she's the one that went out and, and hunted down people that she could assign and say, boy, here's a topic that you'd be good at, would you please? And uh, she's very persuasive. Yeah. So. so she's is able it, to get some good folk. Is it a phone call or is she coming down to Albuquerque, not oh, showing, yeah, up, showing up on the door? Emails. Hey, Brent, yeah. uh, I'm here. I've got an yeah. offer that I'm literally not going to let you refuse. I'm, I'm, I'm an easy date, so I, <laughs> I didn't need that much persuasion. Uh, some of the people that probably have a lot more uh, claim on their time might mm-hmm. have had a, a bigger problem, but I get to do this stuff in my spare time, and I have met her before, and it, it wasn't hard to twist my arm. So your uh, your subjects specifically, you write uh, contribute to two different chapters. I have a couple of chapters there. Um, the original one she wanted me to work on was the translation of the Book of Mormon, questions about the translation and what kinds of things we might learn about uh, how Joseph perform the translation using the seer stones, uh, what kind of evidence we have that there's a connection between that and some ancient texts. Uh, and then the other one is questions on anachronisms that are in the Book of Mormon. So what in the world is the word horse doing there? Because everybody knows, of course, uh, that there were no horses prior to the Spaniards uh, arriving. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting issue, and it's a good question, and there isn't a single simple answer because there's a very complicated set of answers, uh, some of which might be there might be some evidence. The other answers are that even in the Book of Mormon, a horse never acts like a horse. And so we're not sure what that word was supposed to have been in the original plates. So lots of interesting things we can talk about of how they get there. But those are questions people have had. They get bothered by them. Now it's a a chance to get some decent answers. So I want to dive a little bit deeper then. Obviously, we're not going to spoil the book. uh, And we encourage people because this is just a small portion of what is going to be such a great resource for people, again, called A Reason for Faith. Uh, So let's talk about the translation. Sure. Uh, I find it fascinating to me, and we've mentioned this here before, 
before in the cultural hall, the idea of the hat, of looking in the hat oh, yeah. to yeah. translate, was something that, until South Park uh, did a parody of the translation <laughs> of the Book of Mormon, I didn't have much idea about it. Yeah, and most people don't. Yeah. And, and there, was a, there was a reason for that. It's because early members of the church, although they knew about it, they knew that other people thought it was strange. And so very, very early on, they stopped talking about it. And very early on, um, I think it was W.W. Phelps suggested that uh, the word Urim and Thummim might be a much more biblical-sounding thing than a seer stone. And all of a sudden, that's the way everything got discussed. All of a sudden, we're talking about Joseph using the Urim and the Thummim, mm-hmm. which is not a, bib- a term in the Book of Mormon. Uh, it's nothing Joseph Smith had ever said until... Everybody else started calling the seer stones Urim and Thummim, and then he said, well, yeah, I'll call them that, too. Okay, you bet. Yeah, uh, and so a lot of it was the folk history behind using these objects as translation methods got to be an embarrassment for, for the early church, and they just kind of buried it. Uh, and it's not that it didn't happen that way. It's just that somebody knew that somebody was going to get freaked out if they heard about it. And they buried it deeply enough that when it came out, now everybody gets freaked out. Now that we have the Internet and other ways of communicating, it, it's even bigger than we had had before because you know now we've got a lot more people that didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. Now they learn about it and they go, wow, that just sounds strange. Uh, what's interesting is for the people at the time, uh, the idea that somebody would find something with a seer stone uh, or use a seer stone to find something was actually quite common. Mm-hmm. It was part of the folk culture. And so for the first members of the church, it wasn't surprising at all. But the more they baptized people who had been educated in the universities, uh, the more people decided that we probably shouldn't talk about that. So it was a natural reason why it kind of faded, but it's really shocking when it comes back to light now and that most of the work that everybody has to do on it now is not to say that it didn't happen, because of course it did, but help people get the context of what it meant and why people believe that and how Joseph might have used it. It's an interesting thing to me because some of the dissonance for me comes from, hey, you know what? I've been a member of the church my whole life, and why did we never talk about it? You know, it's not like I don't hear the idea of a hat and go, church isn't true. Peace out, guys. Sorry. This hat deal, I can't wrap my head around looking into a hat. But just that, that like like we've said, it it wasn't even talked about. Um, But also, uh, just this idea of... um, well, actually, let's start there. Like, so how or do you address like how to kind of be OK with it? Because I feel like that's so much of why people um, when they find things on the Internet, it, it isn't that the idea of whatever it's saying is difficult to grasp, but that they haven't heard it. Right. And and I think that's the major problem that I hear when people are talking about this on the Internet. It's the question is, how come people are hiding something from me? And people don't remember that history just gets written that way. If you really looked back at American history, American history gets all kinds of cleaned up and prettied up. And uh, most of us don't go into a lather because we find out that George Washington really didn't chop down a cherry tree. (laughs) Uh, We figured, oh, yeah, that was just a story that was told. But those kinds of stories and the way things develop in history, this happens in institutions, and we're not different from any other in the way we tell our stories. The problem is 
we kind of forgot to tell the rest of the story. And there weren't that many places where the actual history was there. And it was other people that started bringing it out and pointing to it as though it were something strange. And mm-hmm. so it, it kind of came from the wrong place and blindsided people. It's something that you know, probably should have been talked about more. But I remember when I was, oh, I don't know, 8 to 12 years old, going to Temple Square, and they used to have a little museum there, and there was a seer stone in the museum. Hmm. And I remember looking in the case and looking at the seer stone and saying, well, I'm not that different from Joseph Smith's age. I should look in the seer stone and see what I could see. And I saw a stone. Yeah. <laughs> It, was it a legitimate one of the seer stones or yeah, just a seer stone? It was, is... it was one of Joseph's seer stones that they had on display. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, so this is now, you know, we're running 50 some odd years ago. But 50 some odd years ago, we were still somewhat talking about it. Mm-hmm. And then it faded and faded and faded. But now that everything is so available to us, it's more surprising some of this history comes back that had kind of faded because we figured, well, nobody's really interested in that. Okay, now they're interested. It's interesting, too, uh, the other part of that whole thing being, like, to me, if it's like, it, if it's true, then let's tell people, and the truth will be all right, you know? That I mean, yeah, and, and I, th- I feel that in, in some of the other things, too, like, when we talk about some women priesthood issues and some of, some of that stuff, it's like, if this occurred, why aren't we talking about it? Because it... Yeah, and I think what you're finding is that the there has been uh, enough pressure on the historians in the church to be able to produce that kind of information that a very important and subtle change happened where they said, yeah, let's go discuss that. And nobody ever announced it and said, oh, by the way, we're going to be transparent in our history. And so when people see that we are pushing out the the Joseph Smith papers Mm -hmm. and publishing them with meticulous work uh, on all of these papers, and they're not holding anything back, They're, they're putting everything out there. People don't realize that the whole idea of, well, the church is hiding something. No, they're not. They're, they're printing everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just wasn't announced that we're going to change that. It just started happening. And so in some cases, people haven't realized how major a change has already happened. Because just like they hadn't heard of the other information before, they're still kind of not hearing this one yet. And it'll take a while before we're used to it, and it seeps through all of the manuals. Um, There there is a large bureaucracy that these things have to kind of work their way through, and it takes a while to get all this information into a manual. But the historical information that's being published, the articles that are being written are all really, really good and using the best of the information available in some cases in the Joseph Smith papers, information that simply hasn't even been available to the public before. Do you think that the mainstream body of the church, though, like if we could say like the the majority population probably won't ever look into some of this stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. Uh, the vast majority of the church has enough to do with trying to figure out how to get their children to to grow up uh, as good human beings. Um, you know, there's there's enough to do to put food on the table to make sure your job is fine, to make sure your relationship with your spouse is okay, that your children are doing what they're supposed to, and uh, you know, heaven help us that we have grandchildren, and good heavens, the grandchildren need help. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, yeah, the human part of life just keeps going on. And some people will get very, very interested in history. Some people will get very interested in all of these things. A large number of people that I meet in wards just kind of look at me and say, well, why, why is anybody even interested in that? I've got more important things to do.
Yeah, I find it fascinating, especially when you talk about the, uh, like the full disclosure, the, um, you used a better word than that, but, uh, you know, this being forthright with a lot of this historical information. When I think of that, I think of the essays and I think about a very conversation that I had with my dad or, uh, recently in the news with that guy who was teaching about blacks in the priesthood and used the uh, the LDS.org essay and he got in some trouble in his ward and they said, yeah. where did you get this information? Yeah, really. He's like, LDS.org. It's one of yeah. the essays. And they're like, oh, and he ends up getting released. And yeah. so it's so fascinating that I feel like there's so much available for people uh, to be able to work through a lot of these things. Unfortunately, I feel like a lot of people that have questions don't find these resources and end up just kind of, whether they're in doubts and then they just leave or they just don't, they don't find an answer and go, I can't find an answer, so I'm just going to, I'm going to leave because of that. Yeah. And sometimes what happens is they find the question and when they're out there looking for the questions, the only answers they're getting are from the same people who are asking the questions mm-hmm. and they're finding it. And then when you get a good answer, they say, oh, well, you're just defending the church. Well, frequently what you're doing is getting a very good answer. Uh, but, but sometimes the path has already been paved another way. Uh, I, I see all of that changing. I think it just human nature means that we're going to change slowly. And the problem with the Internet, with all of the really good things it does, is it puts a lot of information out there that may or may not be all that great, but we have access to it, Mm -hmm. uh, and we can get it very quickly. And just like um, many of the television-watching habits that people have, we're much more interested in the the. Kind of the unusual, and, sure. you know, we'd rather watch the train wreck than watch the train go peacefully by. Mm-hmm. Those extreme things, those things yeah. that might be they, odd or, you know, we kind of cling to those things that might be really different than what we would think. And yeah. and I think you mentioned it earlier. I think that in a lot of these things, like given context, it can help yeah. you understand, okay, this is why the prophet Joseph Smith might have said something like this, or this is what a seer stone or a hat right. or the times, you know what I'm saying? Just putting it within context going, yeah. oh, okay, so different from how we are now, but 180 yeah. years ago, and, sure. And, and people have learned that in some cases about the New Testament, for example, is that you can learn things about the culture and the time of the New Testament. And then you'll say, oh, no wonder they said that. No wonder this happens. Uh, and that gets, it helps you deepen your understanding of the New Testament when you know why they did some of these things. Because in a modern world, it just doesn't kind of make sense to us. And I think the Book of Mormon does the same kind of thing. I think early church history does the same kind of thing. We understand our own world, and then we will push our own understanding back onto times which really were kind of different yeah. than what we are today. So what else about the translation? Tell me, talk to me through some other things. Um, one, one of the issues in translation now is how closely does the translation replicate whatever the language would have been on the plates? Okay. And, and there's a lot of discussion on that. And I think one of the things in this book, A Reason for Faith, that we said in the chapter is that these aren't settled issues yet. These are things that everybody is working on. Uh, I certainly have my opinion, and my opinion is that... Um, you don't get a word-for-word translation. Uh, we know what kinds of word-for-word translations we get of some of the ancient documents. And mm-hmm. The Book of Mormon in English doesn't read like that. Uh, but the content, uh, the structures, uh, many of the things that we find in the text 
have their best explanation as replicating structures that would have been on the plate. So, for example, uh, the literary concept of parallelism, where you have two sentences that will either parallel each other, where you have the same idea, two sentences in a row, or you'll have an antithetical parallel where you start with something and then the very next sentence is the reverse of that. Mm -hmm. You see those kinds of things a lot in the Book of Mormon. Uh, They appear to be structures that were designed into the text and are replicas of something that was on the plates. Hmm. I was just talking to a bunch of friends down at BYU uh, this afternoon, and we were talking about that common phrase, and it came to pass. Yeah. And it turns out that although we have that common phrase, and it came to pass all over the place, and it seems to be a throwaway, it actually functions as a structural marker. And there's a particular function that it serves in the text, and it does it very, very well. And it's just not a throwaway. Um, it's the kind of thing that if I were trying to invent something that sounded biblical and I tossed that in, I'd get it in some places where it didn't make sense and where it didn't fit and where it didn't serve that function. You don't find that in the Book of Mormon. So there's all these interesting little structures uh, that tell us that we're getting something from another place and another time. And in this particular case... Um, A time prior to the invention of punctuation. Uh, We read a text and now we know how to understand it because we have an indentation that marks a paragraph and Mm -hmm. we have periods to tell us where a sentence has ended. And ancient texts didn't do that. And so they needed to have verbal markers that would help someone understand the text. And it came to pass was one of those. It's interesting to me, too. We uh, we do a, a weekly news uh, where we talk about Mormon news stuff. And, and one of the articles that we shared recently was talking about how in the original Book of Mormon to the second edition, there was some grammatical changes like words. Right. And, and I didn't know that, first of all. <laughs> uh, and so reading that, it's like, oh, the, you know, this is fascinating. But then to learn kind of the why, you know, some of those things were changed. I just It's just fascinating. There's so much. Uh, there is. Royal Skousen is the one who has done most of the work on uh, the manuscripts. And he has a very large set of four volumes looking at um, the kinds of changes that were made in the text uh, and some... Uh, because it's that many volumes, there are very few people who are going to read all of it. Mm-hmm. There's some places where he summarizes it, and the summaries are the things that people really ought to read because there's some really important stuff there. Um, he just recently released two volumes that talk about grammar. Yeah. I just picked them up, and I looked through them, and I said, I'm not even sure I'm someone who's going to read that <laughs> book. Um, He's like, but it's really good. Come on, Brian. It's really important stuff, and it really <laughs> needs to be done, and I'm glad somebody else did it, and I may or may not ever read it, but I'm glad I have it and somebody else did it yeah and as a resource because again for a lot of people i'm you know the the value of if you have a question being able to have a resource to be able to go to yeah and and really good scholarship behind it and that's i think one of the things that's happening oh and has now i think for about the last 10 years is we're starting to see some really good scholarship on the text of the book of mormon on uh, literature in the book of mormon um on, on how the Book of Mormon relates to archaeology and to anthropology and history, I, I think we're getting better information now than we've had in the past. And along with the surprise that people have that some things they didn't know, like seer stones, mm-hmm. some of the things that we do know, we probably shouldn't have known because we didn't have good information and there's some of the things that we're learning where we'll say oh yeah that was a favorite thing we thought about the book of mormon it's probably time to let that one go and move on to something else like what 
Uh, most important one is the uh, the Lehigh Tree of Life stone. Okay, that, that, that was a cultural phenomenon in the early fifties and the sixties. They, there were people making plaster casts of the thing and selling little replicas. I have one hanging on my wall. I, my family owned two of them, and I ended up with one. Um, and, and it was, boy, this was proof of the Book of Mormon. Uh, I'm not sure I know what this is, so elaborate oh, a little this bit is more. The, uh, it, it's a, a great big stone that was found in the site of Isapa in Mesoamerica. Okay. And Mesoamerica would put, the, the Mesoamericans would frequently put uh, artistic representations on the stone, and later they would have texts. Uh, this particular one doesn't have text, it just has art. Uh-huh. And the major artistic theme of this particular stone is an incredibly large tree. Okay. And M. Wells Jakeman looked at the art and said, boy, this is is a tree of life and this is a depiction of the dream of the tree of life and over here on this side you see Lehi um, and Sariah and over here you see um, Nephi with his stylus writing on the plates and boy he had it, it was just perfect reading of the way the Book of Mormon went and what this stone set and so now we have this archaeological artifact that just replicates the Book of Mormon and this was a really cool thing yeah um, it, it unfortunately, is incorrect. Oh um, no! <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's that's part of the problem. There are several things that he did not read correctly. He didn't read it in the context of everything else on the site. Um, it's a very weathered stone, and so there are some uh, features. Um, I, I think Soraya is actually a skeletal uh, deity, and, hmm. where they did a better rendition of the art. So, yeah, it was really, really popular and still is. And there's still a lot of people who try really hard to hang on to that one. Yeah. But it, we kind of need to let it go. How, how, do, we, how do we best deal st- with stuff like that? Because I feel like oh. that's certainly not the only one where we're like, yeah, no, yes, this is proof yeah. that the Book of Mormon took place. And here's where well, the, you know how you know, hard the Nephi's it has plan. been for people to realize that, that here was something that they had learned and it's new. And how, do, how come I never heard of that before? Uh-huh. This is the flip side of the same problem. This uh-huh. is, I've heard this all of my life. It must be true. Right. You know, why are you telling me it's not true now? I've always heard that it's true. And that's the flip side of the, how come you never told me this before if it was true? Um, it, it's the same human reaction to things. We just get used to the way we knew it, and we get surprised when something changes our mind. Seems like we can't win. <laughs> yeah, that, that happens too. Uh, again, I'm talking with uh, several of these um, uh, professors down at BYU this afternoon and talking about that kind of a problem where, uh, you know, how do you get the good information out there? How do you let people know what it is? And uh, from the scholarly standpoint, you have to write for the scholars so that they will believe what you're doing. And that's frequently at the level that nobody wants to read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things my wife would love for me to do is someday write a book that she thinks she wants to read. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I don't think I've done that yet. Um, but yeah, that's still on the horizon. She can read the chapters in A Reason for Faith, though. That whole book was written specifically so that people could read it. That's great. So that's that's a better one for those kinds of answers. Uh, anything else? Translation stuff? Maybe one more thing we can... I don't want to give away everything that might be in your <laughs> chapter, but I do want to give people a, a, um, a good teaser. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that'll do us. Okay. Let's take a break for a second then, and we'll come back in the uh, third block. We'll talk about some of the anachronisms. Okay. Uh, some of those things that uh, maybe we can work through. Uh, the book's called A Reason for Faith. It's Brant Gardner. We'll be back in just a minute with the third block of the Cultural Hall. Hi, this is Dan, the Laptop Man from PC Laptops in Salt Lake City. A lot of people ask me if a gaming console or a gaming PC is better. Gaming consoles do one thing. They play games and usually come with a one-year warranty. A desktop or laptop computer from PC Laptops plays games and allows you to learn real career skills like Photoshop, video production, and business skills so you can make a living with technology. Technology that makes you money. Amazing. PC Laptop's desktop computers start from only $7.99, hand-built right here in Utah with a lifetime parts and labor warranty. You simply can't find anything like this backed by an amazing lifetime warranty anywhere. It's downright impossible. Please visit any one of our locations right now or call us at one 877 SAVE or check us out at PCLaptops.com. That's PCLaptops.com. Desktop computers covered forever with a lifetime warranty starting at $7.99. Because at PC Laptops, we love you. Time for the third block of the Cultural Hall, and uh, we're going to finish this up right now. It's Brant Gardner, uh, a reason for faith, a contributor on a reason for faith, and hopefully uh, some of your fellow authors will join us as we kind of do a series of some of this stuff. I want to hear those. Anyone we should uh, stick away from? Anyone? Oh, definitely not. Worth not. No, definitely. <laughs> any and all. I'm just teasing. Uh, honored to have you and certainly any of them as we look forward to the future. So, uh, anachronisms, which I love the word, um, but but let's talk about it. Because the, the horse one is the thing that I hear so frequently oh, yeah. about the Book of Mormon. It could not possibly be true. There weren't horses. Yeah, and there's sort of three ways that people will talk about that. One of them is there is actually some evidence that suggests that there might have been a true horse during around Book of Mormon times, but prior to the time uh, that the Spaniards were here. And I've seen a lot of people uh, do some work on that. I have heard that there has uh, actually been carbon-14 dating and test DNA testing uh, on certain sets of bones uh, that indicate that there was a physical horse somewhere in the New World in various places. We got one. Woo! We got one. Uh, <laughs> the, the problem is it doesn't get published in really big places because the really big places don't want that information. It's not anything they're necessarily interested in. Uh, other kinds of things that tend to happen in archaeological digs when you find a horse bone in uh, a strata prior to Columbia, uh, Columbus coming, you simply assume that it's somehow an anomaly and it got there by mistake and it really couldn't have been there. Right. So you'll get a few things like that. I don't get terribly excited about those. I know a lot of people do because they'll say, oh yeah, it says a horse and by golly, we've got a horse. Mm-hmm. Um, my interest in the Book of Mormon is looking at the text and to see what we can learn from what the text itself tells us. And interestingly enough, the horse in the Book of Mormon, we only know two things about it. We know that it eats and we know that it moves. So apparently it can walk and uh, it can eat. And that's about the only things we know. Uh, Ammon feeds one. Uh, we actually see one in a group of animals that are being moved to get away from an army. 
and that's the only military context they're in, mm-hmm. and every other animal in that movement that they're describing is actually a food animal. So maybe they ate horses or, you know, who knows what. Mm-hmm. But the very fact is that if you look at the Book of Mormon, it never has anyone riding a horse in New World context. Mm-hmm. We do get some uh, of the quotations from Uh, the old world uh, in Isaiah and things like that, that we'll talk about horses and chariots in context of war. But that's all old world world stuff, and it's it's not describing what's happening uh, anywhere in the new world. So the new world context doesn't give us any hints as to what this horse might be. We know from culture in the new world that uh, horses were transformative in the old world. You don't get any of those transformations. Explain that for me. Horses would pull plows. Okay. People would ride them. Uh, you would have armies that, you know, it changed the nature of warfare to have a horse. Uh, it changed the nature of society so that people who owned and could own horse were, uh, in some cases, of a higher status than those who could not. Uh, so it just changed the nature of society, you know, that relationship between that powerful animal and the human. It changed the way we do things. There is absolutely no evidence of that anywhere in in the new world. So even if we find these horse bones and somebody can say, oh yeah, there really was a horse, it wasn't a horse that was being used like horses. And so there's still a question about what that might have been. Um, so is it your thought then that maybe it wasn't even a horse? Because that's what it sounds like. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, I think it's entirely possible that we have uh, what I would call a translation anachronism. And to give you an idea of what I mean by a translation anachronism, in the King James Version, we all know that you should not light a candle and put it under a bushel. Yeah. Everybody knows that this is you. Know, I you tried it once because the, yeah. the scriptures taught me, but I was like, uh, yeah, this- it's, just, it's not effective. Yeah. Uh, But what we don't know is that candle is a translation anachronism. They did not have candles. Nobody was using candles at the time. Uh, So anytime. Well, then the Bible's not true and I'm out. Well, yeah, that's the problem. (laughs) You know, you read that and you go, oh, if there's an anachronism, that must be a problem. And we know for a fact that candles were an anachronism. They did not have them, they had oil lamps. So, you know, the versions with the oil lamps, that one's accurate. But uh, candles and anything else with them, yeah, those are not accurate. Now, the difference is we know it's a translation anachronism, that it came because of the translator, because we actually have the original text, Mm -hmm. and the original text doesn't say candle. So part of the problem with anachronisms is they are an indictment of an original text. And if you find someone who claims uh, to have a text from, let's say, 1830, and it talks about jet airplanes, and this is supposed to be the original, you kind of got an anachronism and you know that it couldn't have happened. Yeah. But if in the 1900s you get somebody who's talking about, um, you know, uh, the flight of a bird or something, and they talk about, you know, some man-made thing in the sky or whatever. The translator could have easily done that. That's what we get with candles. Uh, the translator looked at a source of light, and he was familiar with candles, and so he said candles instead of oil lamps. Mm. So that wasn't what the original said. It wasn't a problem with the original. We end up with an anachronism in the King James Version, and I think that's one of the ways that we get them there. And personally, I think that's Probably what happened is that Joseph Smith, uh, somehow, however he gets these impressions of what it is that he's going to be translating, it runs through his mind and his vocabulary, and the word that comes out the other end of that process is horse. Mm -hmm. Um, 
There is another theory, which is uh, that the Nephites uh, used the word horse for whatever animal they thought was horse-like. Uh, that is a known uh, accommodation from two different languages and two different cultures that clash. Uh, and we get the word, for example, hippopotamus, hmm. um, which is a river horse. And there aren't too many of us who look at a hippopotamus and say, oh, yeah, that looks like a horse. <laughs> um, but that's what the name means. Hippopotamus means a river horse. Uh, and so somebody had called it that, um, even though there's no connection there. So that's a possibility. John Sorensen has uh, sort of championed that idea of the translation that the Nephites just used a, a, a linguistic marker and said, yeah, this is whatever this animal is, we'll call it a horse. Um, I, I think that it came from a different place, but the concept is the same. It's coming from translation, not from the original text. See, and now you say that, and I just want to read the Book of Mormon again and look for when they mention a hippopotamus. Yeah, yeah well, that one you yeah. don't get. Yeah, no, no, no. Like, but you yeah, know, but, the same idea, right? But the idea of you know, Nevi and yeah. Ammon and, and the, here, the horses. Here's the interesting thing about horses, and it's it's horse and chariot that go together, because there is an animal and there is a conveyance, and we simply know that they're prepared. And because of the word chariot, everybody assumes that if you have a horse and a chariot, that the horse is going to be pulling the chariot. Never says that. Mm -hmm. That's simply an assumption that we make because of the word chariot. But chariot is just a conveyance. And so looking at what kinds of things might have happened, the context in which we see this horse and chariot being prepared is one king who is on his way to an official visit to another king. And we see it twice. Mm -hmm. And we get the horse and the chariot two times, both times in the context of a king going to visit another city and going to visit another king. And if we place the Book of Mormon uh, where that event took place down in Maya territory, we know that one of the things that Maya kings would do is to mount an excursion where they would visit other royalty. And in cases like that, they tended to be carried in a royal litter. Hmm. So we probably didn't have a horse carrying it. We probably had people carrying it, but there's frequently animals that are associated with this profession or procession. So what it kind of looks like is that the image of the procession was there, the context is there, and just the words that came out in English don't describe uh, what they would have been uh, in the original plates, but I doubt that Joseph had words that would have worked well for whatever that original was. Let's talk about one more, and then I got a question about yeah. all that. So give me something else. Uh, something else for an anachronism. Um, usually they're all the same kind, but in this case, you know, you go with uh, barley or something else, you know, some other grain. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens is we expect maize, and we don't see maize, we see barley. Mm -hmm. uh, and so those are other kinds of uh, translation anachronisms where we're looking for something that probably isn't there. There are other things that are probably more interesting, and that is that there are metaphors in the Book of Mormon that, um, that depend upon either an animal or a behavior that didn't exist in the New World. And so we have someone being uh, described as stubborn as, you know, pulling an ass. Mm -hmm. and, and we all know what that means, you know. Right. You've got that mental image of the donkey that's sitting down and doesn't want to move, and the animal didn't exist. And so that <laughs> whole concept had to have been something else. But idioms that people understand frequently don't translate well from language to language. Uh, language, or, you know, language to language, you know. So if I get so mad that I blow my top, 
pretty much in English, we understand that that's a metaphor and that the top of my head actually remains firmly attached. Mm. But translating that to another language and they don't have the idiom and they're going, I, I don't understand. Yeah. What's happening with the top of What happened book? to his head? <laughs> yeah. And so those kinds of idiomatic phrases just don't translate well. And we have several of them that depend on cultures that Joseph would have been familiar with, but would not have been appropriate in the new world. And again, I think the translation anachronisms. Do you find that some people get so granular, it's hard to keep faith? Because on some of these things, it seems like it, we... We, you know, we narrow it down or we zero in so much. And and I never want to dismiss someone, dismiss someone's question. But sometimes, like, I just want to be like, (laughs) okay, so, yeah, like, there's this whole hope of eternal salvation (laughs) or we said salt and we didn't have salt yet. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll give you one, an anti-Mormon M.T. Lang, uh, late 1800s. Looked at the Book of Mormon. He said it's obviously not true, and it couldn't be. It couldn't have been a translation because there are English words that derive from Greek and Latin, and there was no Greek and Latin at the time of the Book of Mormon. Okay, the entire Book of Mormon was written in English, and we didn't have English at the time of the Book of Mormon either. So the guy comes up with this really great idea, except the very fact that it's in English is exactly the same argument. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's the same kind of thing. You, you, you look a little too hard. We have both inside and outside of the church a history of biblical inerrantism that we we still are affected by. Um, we still want our scriptures to be word perfect from right. God. Well, because that's what we think, right? It's yeah. the most cr- tra- uh, correctly translated book, and a man to get nearer to God, and I think of that, and I go, well, then there can't be a mistake. There can't be a change yeah, from yeah. the first edition to the second edition. If that's from God, God doesn't make mistakes, yeah, right? There's and, and, this- and that's exactly what happens is we read that, and we'll go, okay, this is exactly what it is that must have been translated perfectly. And that wasn't what Joseph was saying or what he meant with that, but we simply assume that that's what mm-hmm. he must have meant. And so that whole idea that the Bible... Bible has to be absolutely true, and every single word has to be absolutely true. And if that word is in the Book of Mormon, it was meant to be in the Book of Mormon. And then Joseph goes and changes the word in a different edition, and, and we've got to figure out what to do with that. It's really much easier to understand the Book of Mormon as an inspired translation, and Joseph becoming more comfortable with the language of God as he goes on, and looking back and saying, you know, there's a better way to say that. Mm. Um, he gives us his uh, revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants, and the descriptions of how he revealed the Doctrine and Covenants and to the way he dictated the Book of Mormon are very, very similar. And what happens in the Doctrine and Covenants is the dictation will get written down, and then they go back over, and he'll look at it, and he'll add a paragraph. He'll expand something. And what you see from the original uh, version to what we have printed is the explanation. Somebody, you know, Joseph's saying, okay, I know exactly what I was trying to say, but I didn't quite get it. Let me, let me try that again. Mm-hmm. You know, let's expand that. Because he's looking at the area of meaning rather than precise words. And for Joseph, what he wants to do when he translates the mind and will of God for us is to tell us what God wants, not to tell us what God's words were. Hmm. Uh, I, I suspect that one of the reasons why people who do not speak English can still uh, get the full value out of the Book of Mormon is that it's really the meaning that makes the difference and not the words. Otherwise, we're stuck with the Quran where you have to read it in the original. Uh, you don't have to do that with the Book of Mormon. It translates because meaning is what's important, not the original vocabulary. That's a whole different way of looking at the Book of Mormon. 
Yeah. For me. I love it. Yeah, and, and I'm hoping a lot of people begin to look at it that way because we get to the point where we realize that real human beings lived through those things, real human beings wrote them down. And if we can start to understand that those real human beings gave us scripture that inspire us, maybe that can inspire us that our own lives can give our children scripture and our grandchildren scripture and that we can teach from our own lives valuable lessons that, again, children and grandchildren can learn because we're human and they were human and uh, truth can come through that process. I love it. The book is called A Reason for Faith. It's out and available now. You can find the link uh, in association with this episode at theculturalhall.com. Mr. Brandt. Gardner, I've got three questions that we ask everyone who steps into the cultural hall, and I'll ask them of you now. Uh, Number one, do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? I do have a calling. I am a choir director. Yeah. Yeah. That's fun. And I I told them when they called me that you really shouldn't call a tenor as a choir director because choirs cannot afford to lose tenors. And I happen to be in one of the few wards in the church where we have enough tenors that they could still call me and say, darn, I'm the (laughs) choir director. Uh, If you could pick a calling for yourself either one that exists or make one up, what calling would you pick? Oh, that's easy. Gospel doctrine teacher. Yeah. Absolutely love it. Put me in front of a classroom. I just love talking about the scriptures and that, that that's one I'd volunteer for and, and they usually have to tell me no, but I, I try. <laughs> We don't have a couple hours, Brent. We have yeah, 45 that's, minutes. That's one By of the time reasons. time everyone sits I, down, there's only 25 minutes. That's, that's usually the reason why they don't want me. It's sort of, okay, you just can't hold it down. And so, yeah. Uh, and then finally, we ask everyone, what is their favorite part of their faith? Oh. You know, somebody like me, if I don't say the Book of Mormon, I, I'm in the wrong place, you know, because I'm, I'm spending so much time with it. I, I get sometimes embarrassed when there are people who talk about reading it every year. Um, the last time I read it cover to t- cover, it took me 20 years. Oh, my gosh. Um, but I kind of took my time. Yeah, I would say. Yeah. So, yeah, I spend a lot of time with the Book of Mormon, but not reading through quickly, but very, very carefully and trying to tease out things that are hiding in the background. Uh, so, yeah, that's most most of my faith lives there um, just because I've spent so much time with it and continue to spend so much time with it. If people want to know your other projects, let's list them again. Uh, aside from A Reason for Faith, I know you've written a couple other books. Let's tell people those. Yeah, the, they, they're all avail- available from Greg Coford Books. The first one was Second Witness, a contextual commentary, contextual and critical commentary on the Book of Mormon. Six volumes. Uh, my wife's Subtitle for that one is more than you wanted to know about the Book of Mormon. Uh, kind of works that way. Um, I think I like your wife a lot. You would like my wife, yeah. yes. Uh, people find her easily the most uh, likable of the uh, the two of us. Um, so that was the first one, uh, been fairly well received. Uh, the second one is A Gift in Power, uh, translating the Book of Mormon. So that looks at some of this uh, history of uh, seer stones and that kind of information and uh, talks about the translation process and what kind of evidence we have for it. And then most recently, uh, Traditions of the Fathers, uh, the Book of Mormon is history, kind of going through the Book of Mormon chronologically and lining it up with known historical events in certain places and looking how the place and the time uh, not only correlate to the Book of Mormon, but help elucidate some of the events in the Book of Mormon so that they make more sense. Awesome. 
Uh, I appreciate you being here, taking a few minutes with us and talking about it. Uh, We hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body, that if you weren't healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week, and then when the time comes, you'll be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the Cultural Hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat.